Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In this episode of Market Matters, we'll hear from the market data and positioning intelligence teams within our data assets and alpha group. They'll be talking about key macro, micro, and political themes in the context of our high-frequency trading data and proprietary signals from J.P. Morgan's markets business. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at J.P. Morgan. Today, I'm joined by Krupa Patel, who runs the International Market Intelligence Team within our wider Data Assets and Alpha Group. And she's also the author of many of our products in the Global Data Intelligence Team. The last time I interviewed Krupa, which was almost two weeks ago now, we dived deep into the UK and Krupa discussed the ongoing political developments and their implications for the UK economy and markets. But a lot has happened in markets since then. First, over in the US, yesterday we saw that upside surprise to US CPI. It came in hotter than expected, with headline CPI printing 8.2% year-on-year, above the consensus expectations of 8.1%. And perhaps more importantly, the core reading rose once again to 6.6% year-on-year. And the equity markets, which initially fell on this news, then went on to rally. Which does beg the question, is positioning now so light that the markets will even rally on bad news? And then, turning back to the UK, we've continued to see a roller coaster ride in politics with ongoing questions as to how the government's unfunded spending package will be financed and the question marks over whether the government will U-turn on further parts of their growth plan as announced in the mini-budget on the 23rd of September. And given the resulting rise in gilt yields, the Bank of England has now intervened in bond markets three times to attempt to stem this. And today is the day that the Bank of England Governor Bailey has previously said that this intervention programme will end. So I'm looking forward to asking Krupa what she makes of all these developments and what they may mean for markets in the near term. So Krupa, thank you so much for being here once again. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Eloise. So, Krupa, let's start with the US, given the CPI print of yesterday and the subsequent surprising market rally we had in recession. Why do you think this happened? Sure. Thanks, Eloise. So, yesterday's much-anticipated September CPI print in the US came in hotter than market expectations, with the headline number rising to 8.2% year-on-year versus the 8.1% markets were expecting. And the core reading showed yet another increase as well, rising up to 6.6% year-on-year above the consensus expectations of 6.5%. Despite these bearish inflation readings, we saw a fairly dramatic 5% reversal in the S&P 500 intraday, with the index finishing up 2.6% on the day. Across bond markets as well, we saw some pretty big swings, with the 10-year Treasury yield hitting nearly 4.1% from the 3.8% it had fallen to before the print, and then it stabilized down to 3.95%. 
As you can imagine, we had lots of client questions over the reason behind the surprising rally in both equities and bonds, and I think it was largely down to light positioning. So, for example, if I look at our positioning intelligence team's tactical positioning monitor, which encompasses positioning across a broad swathe of investors, it is suggesting that positioning is now looking fairly low versus history. The indicator is currently at minus 1.2 standard deviations, broadly comparable to the minus 1.3 standard deviation level it was at prior to the midsummer rally in mid-June, and getting close to the March 2020 levels of minus 1.5 standard deviations. From a flows perspective as well, we have now seen all of the cumulative net buying from hedge funds in July and August reverse, and flows are now down to year-to-date lows. If I look at the net leverage across equity long-shot funds as well, it is now down to year-to-date lows too. Further, the selling across retail investors over the last 20 days at a single stock level is now comparable to what we saw in March 2020, and CTAs have also been getting more short on U.S. equities with their positioning now back to the lows that were seen during the global financial crisis. So the bearish positioning into the CPI print yesterday may well have been the driver for the market rebound we saw despite the hotter-than-expected release. Great. Thank you, Krupa. It's worth flagging to our listeners that we'll hear from our US colleagues, John Schlegel, head of global positioning intelligence, and Andrew Tyler, head of US market intelligence, in a couple of weeks. And then they'll dive deeper into markets in the US. So do watch out for that episode. So Krupa, what's your take on this light positioning angle? Does it therefore paint a bullish picture for markets from here? Sure. So this is where our data toolkits can be useful. The bottom line is they are painting a pretty mixed picture at the moment. As our regular listeners may be familiar, our Signal from the Noise toolkit has both a fundamental and a positioning component. On the plus side, the positioning component is looking somewhat attractive. Positioning levels are pretty light, as I said before. The tactical positioning monitor is low, and the rate of change of that indicator is pretty low as well. So this could catalyze a tactical rally, and one wouldn't want to ignore this. But on the negative side, however, it is worth noting that the fundamental component of the signal from the noise framework is squarely out of attractive territory. For a fundamental signal to flash attractive, we would need to see all of a weaker dollar, stronger ISM manufacturing, and stronger earnings revisions all in a three-month view. For earnings, this is where the Q3 earnings season becomes critical, and I think that is the most important macro catalyst at this stage. Thank you, Krupa. That's really helpful. Let's now move on to the UK, which has also been a key source of volatility for global markets over the last week. When I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, you were sounding pretty sceptical over the near-term prospects for the UK economy, in line with our economist Alan Monks's view. Is that still the case? Sure. Thanks, Alice. So before I answer your question, let me just recap what has happened in the UK since last Monday, which is when we last spoke on our podcast. Now, last Monday, we had the crucial U-turn from the government on the abolition of the top rate of tax, which was the most controversial measure of Chancellor Kwarteng's mini-budget from 23rd of September. 
in the immediate aftermath of those headlines, we did see some stabilization in UK assets, with the pound notably recovering back up to 115 versus the dollar through the week, and guilt yields seeing some stabilization as well, as they were further supported by the Bank of England's QE intervention program announced a couple of weeks ago. Also helpful for sentiment has been the more reported U-turns from the government on their growth plan, Quartang bringing forward the OBR release assessment to 31st October, and the more recent headlines as of this morning on Friday, suggesting some big reversals on the tax cuts announced at the mini-budget. But it's not all been about government policy in the last week, and certainly not all has been positive news. On Tuesday night, The Bank of England's Governor, Andrew Bailey, confirmed that the QE intervention program, which had been launched after the market turmoil caused by the mini-budget to prevent a potential LDI crisis, would definitely end on 14th October. Now, while this deadline was always known, given the recent sharp unwinding of positions we'd seen amongst UK pension funds on growing liquidity fears, hopes for the Bank of England being there as a backdrop to support pension funds if further required, were dashed by Bailey's warning. While the pound fell below 110, 30-year guilt yields breached 5% once again, and interestingly, global equities took a hit on the back of Bank of England's warning to pension funds as well, we did see a sharp bounce back in all of these assets yesterday. Obviously, the US rally played an important role in the bounce, but also hopes that the government was getting ready to fully reverse their tax cuts likely helped. So does all this mean that the worst might be over for the British economy and assets, and that it might be time to position for a sustainable rebound in the pound and gilts? I, in line with our economists, FX and rate strategists across JP Morgan, don't think so. Two key reasons why. Firstly, faith and confidence in the current government remains low, and the continued U-turns are arguably damaging credibility further. Without going through all the developments of the last three weeks, the 23rd September mini-budget, the subsequent U-turn on the top rate of tax, more U-turns potentially coming on the benefits cuts and the wider tax cuts package, and still no details on how all of this additional fiscal spend is going to be funded, are all going to likely continue challenging the government's credibility further, even if they are successful in shoring up market sentiment for a few more days. The IFS earlier this week reported that the UK needs to find £60 billion in savings to fund all of this additional fiscal spend. And given that the benefits cuts are looking unlikely now, this could prove to be a stretch. We also have Labour continuing to gain a stronghold in the polls and starting to lay the ground for an election victory here. And secondly, inflation is still the number one enemy in the UK. And I think the fact that the government is choosing to prioritize growth and tax cuts over inflation is a big issue for markets. The BRC shop price inflation hit a record high 10 days ago, and the CPI is expected to rise up to 11% in the coming months. Looking at Alan Monks's forecast as well, Despite all of these packages, inflation could remain quite elevated through 2023 and not actually halve until mid-2024, according to his estimates. And this is something that I was mentioning on our last podcast as well. And this remains the problem. 
rather than focusing on bringing inflation down by letting the Bank of England do its job, the government is in fact making the Bank of England's job harder with all of this additional fiscal spending. Markets are expecting rates in the UK to rise up to 55 to 6% by end of March, and even that may not be enough to bring inflation down meaningfully. But I do worry that given growing global financial stability risks, and even at home, increasing turmoil in mortgage markets, which have now driven the two-year average fixed rate to nearly 7%, all mean that the Bank of England may not be able to hike past the 4 to 4.25% mark. And all of this means that in spite of hot inflation, the Bank of England may only hike rates by 75 bips rather than 100 bips that markets are still expecting. And this is the reason that Alan Monks, our UK economist here at JP Morgan, is also forecasting just that 75 bips rate hike on the 3rd of November. So all in all, I do think the current setup in the UK looks very tricky for domestic British assets. It's hard to see an obvious way out of all of this. It's fairly clear by now that Truss and Quartang's policies are unlikely to work in this high inflation environment, hence why a U-turn on the tax cuts package is in the works. If they do try to make them work, then it will have to be through Thatcher-style public spending cuts, which have the risk of prompting more social backlash. And in the event that the tax cuts are fully reversed, we will still be left to find funding for the $220 energy-related fiscal package. Plus, in the background, it is likely that inflation will continue to rage and growth will likely remain challenged. So I think in the medium term, the downward pressure on both the pound and gilt markets is likely to remain, something that our FX and rate strategists across JP Morgan are expecting as well. From a stock market perspective, the FTSE 100 on a relative basis may hold up okay, given that 70% of its revenues come from overseas, and the pound is likely to remain under pressure. But on an absolute basis in the near term, until confidence in the current government returns and inflation is sustainably on its way down, I think it makes sense to stay away from this segment of the UK stock market as well. But what I would be much more cautious on is the domestic part of the UK market, i.e. the FTSE 250, which could continue to be challenged by the tricky growth inflation dynamics that we currently have playing out here. And this preference for FTSE 100 over 250 is something that our strategist Mislav has as well, a call that he reiterated again in his piece earlier this week. Wow, thank you, Cooper. There's obviously such a lot to navigate in the UK markets right now. Now, one question we've been getting from clients is how much the UK matters to global investors at this stage. On the one hand, UK markets are just a fraction of the size of other markets such as the US and the aggregate European indices. But on the other hand, there may be contagion risks or spillover effects from all of this volatility, particularly given the impact we've seen on gilts and pension funds and, of course, the need for the Bank of England to intervene. So, Krupa, how are you thinking about contagion risks from the UK? Sure. So let me start answering your question by first talking about the liquidity situation and the PNL of UK pension funds in aggregate. 
Based on our flows and liquidity strategist Nikos in our research team's analysis, the mark-to-market losses on derivative positions related to LDIs could be in the region of 125 to 150 billion pounds cumulatively since early August. Now, while the sudden and sharp rises in guilt yields post the mini-budget have led to fears over a potential liquidity crunch arising at several of these pension funds because of the increased margin costs that they've received, I think it's important to remember that from a medium to long-term perspective, rising yields are actually helping for these funds as they are helping in bringing down the present value of their liabilities. Having said that, though, funds that used derivatives are more vulnerable in the near term to these rising yields as they had to post collateral to cover mark-to-market moves. Now, the Bank of England's QE intervention program from a couple of weeks ago, which involved the temporary purchase of longer-dated gilts and was earlier this week extended to include linkers for the first time, has clearly been an important source of support for many pension funds in the UK. As the Bank of England Deputy Governor said last week, without that support, a large number of pooled LDI funds would have been left in negative net asset values and would have faced shortfalls in the collateral posted to banking counterparties. With this support scheduled to be withdrawn at the end of today, against a backdrop of still uncertain government policy, there is a risk that we see a vicious cycle of further bond sales which push yields higher, leading to increased mark-to-market losses and collateral calls, which in turn could potentially prompt further asset sales across many of these LDI funds. And remember, the size of the UK pension fund market is still immense. Defined benefit plans have around £1.8 trillion in assets and £1.7 trillion in liabilities as of end 2021. Now, in terms of the risk of a global spillover from this impact on pension funds in the UK, I would say it's definitely something worth keeping on one's radar, especially because bond deals are rising strongly across most DM economies and central banks are remaining committed to their hawkish monetary policy stances. A potential liquidity crunch in the pension fund space, if it is indeed driven by what we've seen so far in the gilts market with sharp big up moves continues, then there is a risk we see similar moves across other sovereign bond markets as well, leading to similar margin calls across their respective pension funds as well. And the credit concerns are not just limited to pension funds. Corporates are at risk too across Europe. If you look at the five-year CDS spreads for the euro area, for example, they are now hovering near levels last seen at the start of the pandemic and not too far away from the levels we saw during the European sovereign debt crisis. To be clear, I'm not saying that an 08-style credit event is just around the corner. At this stage, it's more a risk worth monitoring, and it's something that our quant strategist Kuram Chaudhry has also been highlighting in his pieces lately, because his quant models, particularly his QMI, continue to paint a poor risk-reward for markets, somewhat in line with our data signals and toolkits as well. Great. Thank you so much, Krupa. So before we wrap up, let me try to summarise your key arguments today. First, we touched on US markets following the hotter-than-expected CPI print yesterday. It surprised many of us to see the market reaction to this. First, US futures legged over 2% lower, 
But then they regained all of those losses. And actually, the S&P 500 ended the day up 2.6%. In terms of what drove these moves, there may have been significant short covering in the context of pretty light equity positioning on our various measures. And then against this backdrop, it's worth noting that our equity signals are not yet flashing a strong buy because in spite of pretty light positioning, on the one hand, we haven't seen clear signs of capitulation at this stage. And on the other hand, the fundamental backdrop in terms of macro data and micro or earnings data is still pretty depressed. And in that context, the next key macro catalyst, Q3 earnings, will be key. And then we turn to the UK, which remains a roller coaster in terms of political and market news flow. Within the UK, in line with our strategist Mislav, we do continue to see more upside in the FTSE 100 and the exporter segments of the market, which are exposed abroad and net beneficiaries of weaker sterling, than for the domestic names, which of course remain at the epicentre of many of these risks. So, Krupa, does that summary sound about right? Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you once again, Krupa, for sharing your views on inflation across the US and the UK today, and also for discussing this in the context of our data signals and toolkits. No problem at all. Thank you for having me again, Elise. Brilliant. Well, thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this regular podcast from our group. If you'd like to explore our wider team content further or indeed get in touch, please take a look at our website at jpmorgan.com slash market-data-intelligence. There, you can always send us a message via the Contact Us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. If you're enjoying this conversation, you can subscribe as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Follow JP Morgan's Making Sense on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates. Together, J.P. Morgan. They are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Reference products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer.